0: Hello, hello, everybody. Today, I'm talking about how to learn to study the Bible. And I hope some of what I share helps you to engage your study time. But I also wanna talk about how I'm learning a new skill when reading the Bible. And it's a skill that's teaching me to look for the women. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast where we're having off the record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. So by now, you know, I went to seminary and that's where I learned how to study the Bible really well. There was a famous professor, his name was Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is a guru in the field of learning how to study the Bible. And he taught us this particular method. It has like three prongs to it. You're to observe and interpret and then imply, apply the scriptures. And any of you who have done Kay Arthur's studies, you, you know this method because she uses it. And I use it to train women how to preach. So, I wanted to walk through it just a little bit um, and show you how it looks, and then I want to move on to what I'm learning new about how to study the Bible. So, for example, when I teach students how to preach, um, I have to teach them to observe a passage. And so, I usually take a really familiar passage, something that they think they know what the passage means, like Luke 10, the story of Mary and Martha. It's a very familiar story. And I ask them before we get started. So what'd you learn about this passage? And they usually tell me, and I bet you would say the same thing, that it has something to do with having a quiet time with Jesus, right? That Mary does the better thing. She sits at Jesus's feet and she has a quiet time with him. And so we're encouraged to do the same, which by the way, I'm all for you having a quiet time. The only problem is that's not what this text is talking about. So I say to the class, okay, let's observe and see. And what we do is we just start asking a whole bunch of questions. That's how you observe. You're like a detective that starts asking and looking for all these clues. So, I teach them to ask questions like, who's there? Where are they? What's happening? When is this taking place? What time frames do you see? How do they do what they're doing? We look for repeated words or a rare usage of a word, which means later you're going to have to look up what that word means. We look for comparisons and lists. Paul loves lists. And I ask them to look for the tone of the text. You know, like, what's going on? Do you sense in this text that people are excited? Is this a fearful text? Is it a sad text? Is it a text where there's an expectation, anticipation? So I ask them to tell me the atmosphere, the tone. I ask them to try to see it as a movie, What are the movements in this passage? If you had to lay out the scenes, this would be scene one, and this would be scene two, and what are they doing in those scenes? And I have them write down all the information of everything they see. That's observation, which by the way, they pay me for, and you're getting some of it for free. And then after we do observation, no, well, sorry, let me back up. The reason we do observation is because you start to see things you didn't see before. So when I ask them to uh, what the passage originally meant to them, what did they hear? And it was this quiet time with Jesus. Okay, now we've done some observation. Is it about having a quiet time with Jesus? And they have to say no. Why? Because if they slow down and actually observe who's in the passage, they find out the house is full of people. See, we read that story in black and white, very flat, and what we see is three people, Mary, Martha, and Jesus. But there's way more people there than those three people. Like, we're pretty sure that Lazarus is there. That's the brother of Mary and Martha, and I know that because of John 1, 11, tells me he's their brother, and he even tells me where their house is located. It's in Bethany. That's another observation, which means at some point I'm going to have to get out a map and figure out where Bethany is and why is that even mentioned. By the way, it's a suburb of Jerusalem. It's important. Right? So I have them get um, all this information. I say, okay, who's there? Well, there's Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus. Right. What about his disciples? Was Jesus with the disciples? Well, yeah. Yeah. He walked around with how many disciples? Well, 12. That's exactly right. We only hear three when it's mentioned. Like, if there's just three of them, the scripture tells us. Otherwise, there's at least 12. We know there's probably more than 12. The text often mentions just the men, but we know from Luke 8, 1 through 3, the women also traveled and were disciples of Jesus, right? There's a bunch of women listed there. So we know, we, you know, we're probably talking more than 12, but let's just stick with 12, right? And now we have... Maybe some servants in the house, and I won't go into why. You'd have to listen to one of the podcasts I already did on Mary and Martha to find out why. But basically, they're probably wealthy. If you count how many people I've just named, there's at least 16 in the house. This is not your 5 o'clock in the morning quiet time with you and Jesus. So see, observing helps us figure out things. It helps us see things that we didn't see before when we slow down and actually ask questions. Questions of the text. Once we finish observation, we have to move into t- interpretation. We have to understand what it means. What did it mean? And by the way, not to me yet. I can't ask, what does this mean to me? I'm going to get there. But before I can figure out what it means to me, I actually have to figure out what it meant to the original audience that heard it. How did they hear this passage? What did they understand? What did they know that I don't know because of their culture? right? There were things that weren't said because they already knew it. So what did it mean to them, the original audience? And what did they do because of it? What was the expectation, the action that was required because they had heard it this way and understood it in a particular way? Now, to do interpretation, you usually have to go outside of that particular passage, you can look at other passages, like I mentioned in John 1, 11, which helps me draw a bigger picture to the story in Luke chapter 10. So you can do comparisons from, from scripture to scripture, and I would highly recommend that. And you're also going to have to go outside and use other tools. Like if there's a rare usage of a word or a repeated word, you might have to actually go use like the Greek lexicons or the Hebrew lexicons and say, what did this, what's the fullness of this word? What does it actually mean? And get a bigger picture. You've got to do some research into customs and culture and societal norms and gender norms and statuses. You've got to know how houses are designed and cities and roads are built. Um, And by the way, a lot of this stuff is available to you if you have a study Bible, right? It's in your notes. Not all of it, but a lot of it is there. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because sometimes it appears that us pastors are way smarter than you about the Bible, and that's really not true. We just have the time and know how to go find the stuff. You don't. That's why we get paid to do what we do, right? That's why you support my work at the Marcella Project. You give me the time to actually chase all this information. You have a full-time job that does other things. You don't have time, right? So you pay us to do it. Okay, so when studying Mary and Martha, I had to understand what it meant for them to eat a meal together and what did it look like to do meal prep because it doesn't look like it does today I had to understand the educational system, and what I learned is that women in ancient Judaism weren't allowed to study underneath a rabbi. I had to look at the dwellings, how they were designed, and I learned in that culture there was private and public space, and men were allowed in public space, and women were expected to be in private space. When men come together in private space, it becomes private space. And so what I learned right away is that Mary is in male space, sitting at the feet of a rabbi, learning. She's doing stuff she shouldn't be doing. And this kind of stuff in an honor-shame culture brings shame upon the family. And Martha is probably the head of the household because she's named first. And so what this tells me is that Martha is upset about more than just meal prep. And Jesus says to Martha, Martha, Martha. I love how tender he is to her. He's not scolding her, by the way. Mary has chosen the one thing. And it will not be taken from her. And so we have to ask the question, what's the one thing Mary went for that's not going to be taken from her? That's actually what the story is about. Again, I did a podcast on that whole section. And if you'd love to hear it again, you can go on The Marcella Project and look under the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, or I'll repost it again on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group. And the point is, we observe and then we interpret. And then we apply the passage. That's when we say, okay, what did it mean to them? And how did they respond? Okay, what does it mean to me today? What gets transferred over? How do I transfer it over? And what does it mean for me, right? So this is how I learned to study the Bible. It's how I train people to study the Bible. And I think it's an excellent way. But here's where I think I got a little side wonky with it. Um, somewhere along the way, I came to believe, now I don't know if I was taught this, or I picked it up, or I just came up with it on my own. I'm trying to be gracious here. Um, I came to believe that it's the only way, or the very best way, right? That other ways, other lenses, other ways of asking questions to the text are suspect. So for example, reading a Christian feminist or a womanist scholar was suspect for me. Because they came to the text with a particular lens, with an agenda, some might say. And I was taught that we're not to come to the Bible with an agenda, we're to read the Bible objectively. You've heard that, haven't you? How we read the Bible, you know, your pastor just preaches the Bible. I remember one time being in Dallas and this younger man came up to me and he was just involved with a new church plant in um, Coppell and he said to me, well, you know, my pastor, he just preaches the gospel. And I wanted to say to him, well, the rest of us obviously are not doing that. (laughs) And then that was the implication, right? He just comes to the text with, you know, neutral, very objective when he teaches truth. Um, And I have come to learn something that like is an aha, like who are we kidding? No one comes to the text empty. Everyone brings their cultural context. So the next time you hear that, just know that. There is no way you can come at something without being an American and having an American cultural context, unless you're not an American. We all come to the text with working assumptions, whether they're implicit or explicit, we all have them. So I'm in seminary again, an evangelical seminary, might I add. All the seminaries I've gone to have been evangelical. And they have me reading Christian Feminist and womenist scholars, and I continue to have to fight myself. I'm still hearing this inner voice, like, beware, slippery slope, impure, impure. Have you ever had that happen to you? Now, I should probably pause and explain, because some of you are going, oh, I'm not okay with that word Christian feminist or womanist. And some of you don't even know what womanist means, and I get that, because I actually didn't until about a year or two ago either. And when I share it with my friends, they look at me like, huh? And I realized, oh, need to give some definitions. Um, So a Christian feminist acknowledges that the Bible was written in a patriarchal culture and has been interpreted through an androcentric perspective. That means a male perspective. And I should add, usually from a white Western descent male perspective. And that means one must try to peel back those layers of patriarchy in order to find the women. And I have studied the Bible for 30 years now. And I have to tell you, for most of it, I've missed the women. Like, I just learned. I just learned. I just turned 56, like, two days ago. I just learned at 56 that there are 111, 111 named females in the Old Testament. I had a a, a megachurch pastor sitting in my house yesterday, and I told him that, and he goes, 111? And I'm like, yeah, 111. How many of you know any of those? Well, maybe you know five. 111? How many of you have heard 111 of them preached on? Yeah, so there are 111 named women in the Old Testament, and there's hundreds more who are unnamed. So think about that. There are unacknowledged women who make up the peoples of Israel. So when you hear Israel, right, we should be thinking half the population female. And when we read about the nations in whom they come in contact with, those are half population female. So the number of women and girls submerged under these storylines in the text are beyond counting. And that is just the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, let me ask you, because this will help you see how we've been trained to see the text androcentric, androcentric, um, So so think about the last time you've envisioned the the story about the Last Supper. We usually read it around Christmas, right? When you have that picture in your mind, what do you see? Because if we're really honest, most of the famous paintings depict men, the 12 disciples and Jesus. But the women were there. The women were there. But when we hear that story, we don't find the women there. And what about the last time you heard Jesus, the story about Jesus telling the disciples about the sower and the seed? You know that parable in, in Luke, uh, I think it's Luke 8, yes. And, and it's Luke 8, 4, in fact. Um, do you picture the women listening to him tell that story too? So when you see him telling his disciples, do you just see the 12 men? Or are the women there too? I'm guessing you don't see the women any more than I did. But they're there. Just read Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke 8, 1 through 3. Luke lists a bunch of women disciples traveling with Jesus and the 12. And what about when we read Paul, particularly when the translators use the word brother, right? He usually does a greeting, like um, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And that's in one of the verses. And the translator chose the word brother because he expected his audience to understand that brother also included the women, So Paul was actually speaking to brothers and sisters. But often, depending on the translation, we pick up the word brother, and we don't see the women in there. And so what a Christian feminist scholar does is she looks for the women. She purposely, or he, purposely promotes and celebrates the worth of women in the scripture. Okay, so that's uh, Christian feminist. By the way, there's a broad range of that, but I'm just giving you a simple term. Now, womanist scholarship, what is that? Great question. That emerged as a corrective to the early feminist theologians, which these feminist feminist theology was written by white feminist, mostly women, like me. And those women did not address, us women did not address, the impact of race on women's lives or take into account the realities that faced black women within the United States. And so, Will Gaffney, you've heard me mention her just recently, is a womanist scholar. I've mentioned her. I'm reading her book called The Womanist Midrash. And here's a few questions she's teaching me to ask the text that I had never learned before, and I used to be suspect of. Questions like, where are the women and girls, and what are they doing, and what are their names? When women or other marginalized characters speak and act, whose interest are they serving? And here's what I love. What are the power dynamics in the narrative? What are the ethical implications of the text when read from the perspective of the dominant characters? And then what are the ethical implications of previously, especially traditional, readings of the text for black women? So we went over the way Gaffney uses this interpretation method, the questions she asks to the text. We went over it, and then the prof, you know, highlighted it, and then she just moved on to the next person's way of, of, of studying the Bible. And I was like, um, <laughs> I raised my head, hand on Zoom, and I was like, hold on, ho- hold on. Um, are you saying that Gaffney's method of interpretation, interpretation has become acceptable among evangelicals? Like, what I was really asking is, is this okay for us to ask these kind of questions? And my prof said, Yes. And it hit me. Even though I've been trained and trained well to ask questions of the text, I have been trained to ask androcentric questions. So let me ask you, what do you think happens when only men, mostly white Western descent men, decide what are the acceptable questions to ask a text? What do you think happens? Furthermore, and maybe more importantly, What might we be missing about God and us and our world? Because we don't have other voices asking other questions, questions that we aren't asking. This is a very thought-provoking thing for me right now. It's something I'm starting to work on. So I want to take a break. I want you to ponder on that a little bit. I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, I, I want to I look at a very familiar story in the Old Testament, but this time, it's a story that actually has male characters, and we know it very well, um, but this time I want to look underneath, peel away, and see if we can find the women, and in doing so, what do we learn about God and us and his expectation for us in our world? All right, so here we go. We're going to go back to a familiar story. Um, it's the Exodus story. <laughs> I think you know it well. Um, hold on one second. I'm pulling something up on my computer because I forgot to do it, and now I need to. Aren't you glad you're going to wait just two seconds? And I'm such a speed demon on my computer. OK, I got it. Here we go. So, we're going to talk about the Exodus. You know it. It's in the Old Testament. It's where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and God brings on the plagues, and the Pharaoh says, get out of here, and then the water parts. I'm summarizing. And we've been trained to listen to that story in a way that accentuates the men, right? We we see the characters in the story. and We see God, who is neither male nor female, And then we see Pharaoh, and then we see Moses, right? Moses is the great deliverer. But what happens if we peel that back and we actually pause and slow down and look for the women? Now, I probably need to tell you that the Exodus story, the theme of Exodus is deliverance, God's deliverance of his people who are in oppression. And we could say that it's the gospel story for the Jews, And in many ways, I would say it's their liturgy, because they tell it and retell it and tell it again to every generation. That's liturgy. And Exodus 1 um, opens up with a genealogy, a list of men. And the intention there is that to help us readers, to help the hearers catch up to speed with the connection. Like, how did the Israelites end up in Egypt? That's what that author is trying to tell us. Okay, here's how this story happened. How and why are the Hebrews there? And then we have verses 6 through 10. And in that, we have a conflict. And the Pharaoh perceives a threat because the Israelites seem to have too many babies. And that's what I wanted to pull up and read to you because I forgot to pull over my Bible. So here we go. I'm going to read it from, I'm so hip. I'm reading it from the computer. It says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Take note of that. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So there's the conflict. Joseph is dead And there's a new king in town who has no personal connection to the Hebrews. And this is important. And I love what um, the Christian feminist theologian that we're reading right now, her name is Jacqueline Lapsey, and I kind of like her just because her name's Jacqueline. But anyway, she um, she says this, which I think is really important. Um, She says, as is often the case, an interpersonal relationship with a representative of the other, quote unquote, can serve to humanize an entire group. The lack of a relationship can dehumanize an entire group. Let me say that again, because I think that's pertinent to our day. As is often the case, an interpersonal relationship with the representative of, quote, unquote, the other can serve to humanize an entire group. The lack of a relationship can dehumanize an entire group. I wonder if we pause on that, um, we would think about how that had affects us in our homes, in our churches, in the policies. and How does having relationships with the other change how we actually view things? Um, I had the privilege of attending the UN Commission on the Status of Women for several years in a row. I have no idea why they asked me to go, but I said yes. And one of the things I learned there over the years was that um, – we dehumanize, us when we dehumanize a particular people group, they now can become expendable to us. You do realize that as soon as we dehumanize someone, they can become expendable. And isn't that what we did to the blacks in slavery, right? We dehumanized them. We made them less than human, and then we could abuse. They were expendable. And I'll post that quote, by the way, on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook page because I think it's such a profound thing for us to be noodling on. Okay, so new king comes. There's no connection. He's freaking out and decides to stop the madness by exhausting the men with forced labor. He thinks that if he makes them so exhausted from working, they won't have sex. And notice in the text, and if you read this passage, his focus is on the men. But it's the women he should be paying attention to because here's what's interesting. And again, we're peeling this back and saying, where are the women and where, what's their role in this? Here's the thing, it's easy to copulate, but it takes a whole lot more, and can I hear an amen from the women in the audience, to carry, birth, nurse, and raise a healthy child, especially in antiquity, especially as slaves in antiquity. Pause on that for a moment. In this time frame in history, about 50% of all babies died. That was regular, not people who were enslaved. 50% of all babies died. It was normal for women to die in childbirth. And if a mother and baby lived, well now she's got to produce milk. Now, how easy do you think it is for women to produce milk when they live in poverty? When food is scarce? when they live under very harsh conditions, when they are stressed and fatigued, enslaved. This is not the ideal circumstance for women to be producing milk. Yet the story says the more the Egyptians oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied. And I'm going to add Israelite women. These women continued to deliver and deliver and deliver babies. So if the theme of Exodus is about deliverance, then what we see here is the first time that theme is being developed. The deliverance theme happens right here. It starts right here. We think it starts with Moses. It doesn't. It starts right here with the women. They are the very first to deliver in the deliverance story. And this makes Pharaoh madder than hell, and he decides he's going to have these midwives kill the baby boys upon delivery. And again, he's focused on the boys, right? He thinks if he kills the boys, then the ethic identity, which is passed through the father, will die off. But again, think about this. It's not very logical because eliminating the girls makes more sense. Fewer girls can bear fewer babies. A fewer men can father a lot of babies, And again, I love how Lapsley states this. He says, twice Pharaoh decrees that the girls will live. He says it in 116 and 122. He gives an edict to kill the boys, but he says you can leave the girls alive. And in doing so, he himself intensifies the very power, woman's power, that becomes his undoing in the end. So we have Shifra and Puah. These are the two midwives. I'm going to call them by name because we don't have a lot of women who are named. So when they are, let's call them out. Even if we slaughter their name, who cares? Let's say their name. They are asked to kill on birth. But the text says they feared God more than Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. Now, let's not move through that too quickly. I've heard it often said that men are naturally designed to be courageous and brave and protect, right? Isn't that what we say about men? But who's being courageous and protecting here? Seriously, is that a masculine characteristic? Or is it a human characteristic some of us have and some of us don't? What kind of courage does it take to stand up to the most powerful man in the world? Well, let me ask you. Have you ever been in a situation where someone of a third of authority over you has asked you to do something that goes against your faith, or if you're not a believer, your ethic, you know, an ethic standard or a line that you have? You know, how hard was that? It's hard. It's scary. It's risky. And by the way, they probably didn't have the power to kill you on the spot like Pharaoh did. So these women, they deserve our pause. They deserve for us to sit with them and hang with them a little bit before we move on to Moses, the big actor in the story, right? They don't do it. And so Pharaoh calls them into his chambers and he says, I need you to give an account. And they lie. They, they tell him that the Hebrew women are more vigorous, they say, in giving birth, which is kind of true. But they're also playing on his prejudice. See, he sees these women as less human. They're kind of savages. And so he buys it and he lets the midwives go. And what I love about peeling back this story is looking for the women is that we find that women are the first to deliver in this book, a book about God's deliverance, right? We think it starts with Moses, and I'm reminding you, no, no, it starts right here with the women. They act to preserve life in the face of overwhelming threats of violence, at enormous risk to themselves, and by means of cunning and deception, buckling a male-dominated system, they risk their lives for the sake of life. But there's something more being revealed here because in most of these stories, we find that uh, the women to be in opposing groups. The midwives are most likely, and it's up for debate, they're most likely Egyptian women. And if that's true, then what we see here is we have free Egyptian women collaborating with enslaved Hebrew women to save the most vulnerable in society. Sit with that for a moment because I actually think that's a theme God's trying to show us if we will peel back the story and look closely at the women. We see this pattern with the women in the Exodus 1 through 6 stories before we really hit Moses' story. We see this pattern. We see it here with the midwives, and then we see it again with Miriam and the Pharaoh's daughter, And, and, and then again later in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12 is when they're on their way out of Egypt, and the Egyptian women hand over their clothing and articles of silver to the Hebrew women before they head out. So again, there's this pattern of women crossing over gender and ethnicity and class to liberate the oppressed. It's a theme that we see if we will peel back and look at the women. So Miriam and the Pharaoh's daughter, you remember that story, right? The Pharaoh says, okay, you can't kill them upon delivery. Then let's throw them in the river after delivery. And this is where Moses comes into the story. He's born and his mother, Jochebed, defies the Pharaoh's edict. She hides her son for three months and then she can't hide him any longer. So she gets creative. She kind of does what the Pharaoh commanded, kind of. I mean, she makes a basket and quote unquote throws her son in the river And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and she takes him in. And I've never considered this before, but slowing down and observing the women, I I had to reckon the fact that here is this powerful princess, and she's defying her father's edict. The most powerful man in the world, might I add. See, she knew he was a Hebrew boy. And I think he knew it too, right? So she knew her father said, kill him. But she doesn't. Did Pharaoh ever notice that Moses was Hebrew? I mean, did he know? Maybe he had multiple wives and multiple palaces. I suspect this is true. And he hadn't been around this princess' daughter for a while. And she, you know, he got old enough where she could hide his. I don't know. But what we see is an Egyptian woman collaborating with a Hebrew woman, right? In Exodus 2.17, Moses' sister Miriam approaches the Pharaoh's daughter, which was extremely brave of her. Here we go again, courageous and protection happening. And um, she suggests that she gets a wet nurse to feed the baby. And then, of course, you all know she brings the baby back to her mama, and mama gets to nurse her son. So again, this book of Exodus, which is about God's deliverance, and we have Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter. We have an enslaved Hebrew woman and a freed Egyptian princess conspiring together to save the most vulnerable in their society. And Lapsley beautifully points out that instead of seeing this as a marginal story about women that precedes the real story of God's acting to deliver Israel through Moses, that we pause and see the transgressions of gender and ethnicity and class inscribed in the story of deliverance as a template, as a template for the divine liberation Of all of humanity that is yet to come. So instead of seeing this as a marginal story about women that proceeds to the real story, right? We're to pause. We're to pause and let that sink in. That there is deliverance happening. And what is that deliverance showing us? It's a template being set up. So I'm supposed to tidy this up for us, like the application, right? So what does this mean for me? And I worked on that and worked on that and I kept praying and I got to be honest, the spirit wouldn't let me settle on some like, here, here's your way to eat this. Here's what you're supposed to do with this. Now go and be it's like, um, no, Jackie, you're still in process. And so let this be in process. And so here's a couple things that I'm still noodling on that I would love for you to consider. Um, one is, I don't know if you've picked up on these stories, but in every one of these stories of deliverance, Um, There is lying and deception and subversion in the name of justice. And I want to point that out there, first and foremost, that women are not naturally deceptive. This is not a story where we go, see, women are just conniving. No. Um, These are stories where women are having to use these methods in order to save lives. And it looks like, from the way we watch God respond, he doesn't condemn it. And so I was trying to process this, like, is it okay to lie and deceive and be subversive? And so I called my kids because I think they're really good at thinking. And I said, hey, do you guys think you could have a conversation with me about virtue? I need to understand what virtues are. Do they shift? What do I do about that? Can we say that you can't lie? Is that a virtue? Is that a Christian virtue? I know. These are the things I leave on their their phones all the time, and they're very used to this. (laughs) Oh, mom's calling again. What I do know about this is it teaches me to be very careful about what I say about God, right? Like, I want the Sunday school version. Lying is bad. God says we shouldn't do it. And the truth is it's a a yes and no if we actually look at all the text and peel them back. And I'm wondering more and more if maybe our sacred scripture is asking us to wrestle down. to use wisdom rather than trying to figure out what's right or wrong. Like, how do I process this? What's the best way, the most healthy life way here? Maybe the text is teaching me to live in complexity and nuance rather than boiling down to a Sunday school proposition. It's easier when you give me a proposition. It's harder to have to figure out how wisdom applies to this. It's something I'm working on and thinking through more and more. Another thing I take away from these stories is they force me to acknowledge that God is about way more than my individual freedom. That at times, like the Jews, and and, you know, I think they thought, oh, this Exodus is about Jewish people, one particular people group being released. Yes, if we only look at Moses and beyond. But what we see if we look quicker and earlier in the text, the template, the four chapters one through four, and even chapter six, is we actually see the ethic of of deliverance being developed, and it requires that we cross gender lines, and class lines, and ethnicity, and race, and collaborate together for the freedom of the marginalized and the vulnerable in our society. And that's very convicting, I have to be honest. I had to ask myself, how am I doing with that? Like, Am I willing to risk, like these women risked, stepping across those lines? You know, ethnicity, race, gender, class. Am I? How am I doing that? See, like these passages actually have something to say about how we view immigration and black lives matter and poverty and domestic violence in the United States. The sacred scripture still speaks to where we are today. And lastly, and this is where I'll end with, how can I train my eye to stop when I see a name or unnamed woman in the text? What questions might I need to be asking in order to see these women? This is why I'm reading scholars like Gaffney and Lapsley. Um, They may not have been accepted in my previous seminary degrees, but what I am finding out now at 56 years old is that their voices and others like them are absolutely necessary if I'm going to find the women. And more importantly, and this is what I think is more important, in order for me to see the fullness of who my God is and whom he loves and what he's expecting me to do about it. So thanks for listening. I want you to know I'm really grateful for you. If this podcast has been helpful to you, would you be willing to subscribe? Would you be willing to pass it on to another who might need to hear? And this week, when you open up your Bibles, would you look for the women? Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.